Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to the Addiction Connection. This is our now 10th bullet point summary of our COVID echo from today. So the addiction doc's gone COVID. Kind of like rogue. Yeah, now remember we don't ever fix these if we screw up and we're both cranky today, so <laughs> it could go anywhere. So Kurt, Kurt, just before we turned this on, said that he was in a crib in 1918 during that whole influenza thing. So just so you all know. Spanish flu. <sighs> So anyway, today was a very, very busy echo with a lot of information, um, starting with a professor, vice chair of research in the University of Minnesota. She's got way too many letters after her name. There's like 14. I don't know what any of them stand for except PhD, master's in public health, and a bunch of other things. Jerrica Berg talked about the three big things that are happening as far as trials and studies at the U. Yeah, and if you would like to look at these, uh, please uh, please look at the, their website, and actually um, I think you can contact them as well. If you have any questions, you can get hold of Katie Stangle at our, at, uh, our website, or you can email her at katiestangle.com. Dot CatholicHealth.net. No, Katie Single at CatholicHealth.net, but okay. The dot is kind of like an at. So the big thing I think that's pertinent to anybody in healthcare is that they do have some healthcare worker-specific trials going on. So if anyone's interested in being part of any of that, go to their website. Yeah. We then transitioned to the main topic for today, which focused on end-of-life care, um, symptom management of potential end-of-life care, how to have these conversations, especially, you know, when COVID is not anything anybody's really prepared for and any type of advanced directive prior to 160 days ago. Yeah, he kind of started out his whole talk with uh, my Uncle Hop- Hippocrates' uh, quote. <laughs> well, this was, we Un- should we probably... We called him Uncle Hippo. <laughs> My goodness. Anyway, we should probably identify the speaker. It was Dr. Victor Sandler, who is the co-chair of the University of Minnesota Medical Center Ethics Committee, um, chair of Minnesota Network of Hospital Palliative Medicine, co-chair of Minnesota Pulse Task Force. So the dude knows what he's talking about for end-of-life care. Yeah, and he, he talked about a lot of different things, including kind of patients' rights. Uh, started out with a little something on patients' absolute rights that uh, – their decision-making capacity, that it's really a, that they have to be of sound mind to have a common law and constitutional right to refuse life-sustaining treatment, and that this right is also extended to patients who lack decision-making, uh, and of course that's through surrogates, and this right does not depend on prognosis. It's a basic right. So basically, someone has the right to refuse going into the hospital and getting intubated for two weeks. I should I have the right to say, I won't work with you anymore. <laughs> Retire. Yeah, I should retire. The answer. Anyway, informed consent is really um, the assessment of a patient's capacity to make this decision, but the patient has to know um, the exact procedure, the alternatives, the risks of whatever might be done to them, 
and it has to be the decision by the patient. Um, and again, the patient needs to, of course, have sound mind in all of that. It is part of a professional value system, part of the Bill of Rights in Minnesota. It's part of AMA Code of Ethics um, that you really need to explain to patients what's about to happen to them yeah, and the and risks and benefits of that. Yeah, and another part of that whole AMA Code of Ethics is that uh, you know because of our commitment to care for the sick and injured, uh, physicians really have that obligation to provide urgent medical care during disasters. And uh, this obligation really even holds in the in the face of greater than usual risk to physicians' own life, health, and safety. Which brought him to the whole point of why this is important for this whole COVID epidemic and pandemic is because, you know, they're anticipating 70% of the world's population, of course, is going to test positive or have this diagnosis at some point. Of course, it doesn't necessarily affect everyone equally, as we all know, um, but that this harm principle exists as well. So a competent adults can also, like we had mentioned, have the decision to, to, to pursue treatment or not unless it's starting to cause a risk to other people, um, such as we had talked about today during the, the echo about a patient refusing to get transferred to a you know higher level of care, tertiary hospital, um, because they prefer to stay in the rural hospital that could potentially pose more risk and could bring up other ethical things. So I think the bottom line for all of this is to, to really have these conversations with your patients beforehand. I think it's pretty interesting. He kind of talked a little bit about some of the pandemic data. And, uh, of course, the 1918 flu, which I lived through, um, okay, I didn't. He likes to make fun of, get mad at me for calling him old and never called him 100 yeah. years old. Well, let me say this. My grandma was nine when this happened. And uh, she recalls that, in fact. And so I, I think that's really pretty interesting. But they had 50 million deaths, um, which was really five. That was an interesting noise. Uh, that was 5% uh, of the world's population. I, I think if we look at it now and we have 1.2 million cases with that 6% fatality rate, probably doesn't compare. Uh, and, and even if we had a couple million, it's still nothing close to the 1918. But, of course, I suspect medical care was slightly different. Slightly but, you know, and, and you know, I think part of that, though, is, yes, medical care is clearly advanced from 1918, um, but also the travel and people moving around and the ability to spread disease is a little bit higher now as well. Um, I think he, he mentioned that. But the big thing, as we talked about, was who is at risk of all of these things. So if you look at just New York, the fatality rates is about 7.6% of all patients that um, tested positive that have passed. But if you look at patients who got on a ventilator, 88% of all ventilated patients um, did not survive the ventilator. And over the age of 65, 97% of them did not get off that ventilator. So it's it's really looking at this higher risk already, higher comorbidity uh, patient group. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting when you look at that uh, um, the fatalities, of course, uh, really anybody over the age of 80, it's 15 to 20%, which, um, you know, that's a, that's not a good look. So, And Minnesota has become one of the hotbeds, as we mentioned last week, with the long-term care and nursing home facilities. And then currently in Minnesota, the fatality rates for the nursing homes and assisted livings is 28% um, right now. And Dr. Hick later, when he came back on, and we'll talk about more of what he said later, but he did make point that 18% of Minnesota's long-term care facilities right now do have COVID cases. Yeah. 
So he talked a little bit about the difference between an advanced directive and a pulsed, and uh, let's see if you can remember what pulsed means. Physicians, Physicians. of something life-sustaining treatment. Yep. Physician order, because it's an Ordered. order. Yeah, physician-ordered life-sustaining treatment. And it's a it's a uh, legal advance directive. I like uh, how you literally just pimped me like I'm a medical student, I and I passed. Just barely. You said <laughs> order, not ordered. Um, but often uh, these legal advance directives are created really before serious illness and should be, and they're really used to communicate that person's wishes, uh, you know, to their family, to the physicians, and and providers in case their own physician might not be there. And these have to be completed and signed by a person and, and actually witnessed or notarized. So really important that these are done in advance. And these are really used to prevent kind of these legal and moral problems that can arise um, in the event that the patient succumbs to their disease and and they don't have that. So, uh, And a person can assign a healthcare agent to speak on, on their behalf should they not be able to communicate. And I want to be clear, Dr. Bell, that won't be you for me. That, that sounds way too dangerous. Um, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about the pulsed. I have so many things to say to that, but I'll skip ahead. So the pulsed, and I really like how he laid this out because I guess I, I mean, I clearly understand the difference. However, I didn't realize that if a person has an advanced directive that says DNR, DNI, ambulance gets called, they still have to do life support and CPR and do all the things, even though their advanced directive says no, because in order to like actually not do those treatments, there has to be a physician order and, you know, to stop those treatments. And so that's where the pulse comes in is that that is a physician order. The physician, we have to sign that. Um, Not everybody in the universe should have a pulse. It's the patients who are more elderly, who have more serious diagnoses, more comorbidities, um, that they just wouldn't maybe do well with a serious illness at the end of life. And so they can state right on there, no, I do not want this done or this done or this done. And then a physician signs it. So if ambulance does get called for whatever reason and it's hanging on the fridge, they don't have to do CPR and bring them in. So this is something to definitely think about with your more high-risk patients right now as COVID's starting to seep into our more rural communities. And I think we have a a convent right next to our hospital and I have several patients at the convent and I can't even count how many pulse I've had to sign in the last couple of weeks, actually. Interesting. I have not signed one. I don't think many nuns would prefer to go to you when they could see me. Potentially. So if a person, one of the issues would be as if this person was found uh, and they needed aggressive life-saving measures but only had the advanced directive in place, you know, healthcare workers are required by law to really do everything Basically, um, and I don't think you said that specifically, uh, <laughs> but this close. is but this isn't ideal because um, you know if we do all of these things in this era where we with COVID nineteen uh, that aerosolation uh, risk did I say that correctly? <laughs> Aer- Aer- you can aerosolize. aerosolize. Boy, somebody typed this up funny. It wasn't me, um, but you could aerosolize COVID, and and again, this is also a risk. And typical man blaming somebody else. <laughs> yeah, so. It, you know, I think that's really a key is that right at this point, we're trying not to do some of these things that will aerosolize uh, COVID, and especially if the patient didn't want it in the first place. So that's really a key. So bottom line, you need the pulse if you don't want something done by first responders. The goals of care should really be written out on that pulse, again, signed by a medical provider, um, physician, nurse, practitioner, PA, Um 
the forms can actually now in the time of COVID be done via telemedicine um, and can be filled out with a social worker or a nurse and then just fax to the provider or it can be brought to the clinic for the provider to sign. They don't have to be the ones to personally do this. But that if PPE is not available, a provider does not need to do the CPR if you're not comfortable because if you're not protecting yourself, that would be one of those situations where you don't necessarily need to do those things. So there's a lot of, you know, big topics when we're looking at something that's so, um, you know, transmissible and scary like COVID and that there are resources available. Is that what you were going to say? I was going to say yes. And if you want to get the Minnesota Pulse, you can go to www.pulsedmn.org uh, or to the Center to Advance Palliative Care, CAPC. And they do have a COVID-19 response toolkit at that site, www.capc.org. And then... And then Je we switch to Jennifer Welsh. Yes. She's a physician at Fairview Home Care and Hospice. And she initially talked a little bit to us about uh, this dyspnea management for these patients that decide to stay home. And um, just some simple things she started with, how positioning can make such a big difference if you got somebody in their home and that often a hospital bed would be needed so that they could be positioned sitting up. And that generally if oxygen is used initially, um, you know, that that management for hypoxia, trying to keep it between one and five liters per uh, per minute would be really the, the optimal goal. When if they're home on oxygen, it's not necessarily let's monitor their oxygen saturation. If the goal is to keep patients comfortable, it's more to the patient's comfort is where you should bring your oxygen and stop checking oxygen levels in the blood. Yeah. And then, of course, with wheezing, uh, trying to avoid that albuterol nebulizer, nebulizer because that can cause trouble for anybody else that's around them, uh, switching to the M MDIs, which I think we've talked about in the past. As far as dyspnea management, so the shortness of breath management, um, standard of care continues to just be opioids. Um, she went through lots of different dosing things. And if you want to get the exact slides, which I found really helpful and it'd be really nice printed out, um, you can go to the Minnesota Academy of Family Physician website to this COVID Echo um, page and you can print today's actual talk. But um, opioids, first line morphine because it can be given um, sublingually, orally, buccally, rectally uh, morphine. Now, if they have a renal issue, a renal dysfunction, hydromorphone. Um, and she did mention that a lot of the compounding with hydromorphone sometimes is a little bit easier for like the solutabs. Um, but then oxycodone, kind of the thing that most people are most comfortable with. A um, little bit harder to get that in liquid form, in solutab form, but um, just uh, really the big thing is is to give the dose. If it doesn't work, it's okay to increase the dose. So, you know, if this is end-of-life care, comfort management care, make the patient comfortable. And then an anxiety Oh, I wish I could yeah, so, treat my anxiety dealing with you every day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, the the couple different ones she talked about were really uh, lorazepam and uh, diazepam. Of course, diazepam's a, a lot longer acting and, uh, you know, can cause some issues if it piles up a little bit. But uh, probably the treatment of choice is still Ativan, lorazepam. And, uh, again, those dosing are available on MAFP's website if you want to look through those and print those out. I thought they were really pretty interesting. Um, and you can give those at lots of different routes as well. So um, a lot of different ways we can do that. 
And a side note goes against everything the normal addiction connection teaches in our addiction world is that, yes, it is okay to give opioids and benzos together. Again, this is end-of-life comfort care. Um, but again, like I mentioned before, pharmacies may need to compound these medications for you to be able to make these solutabs, to make the liquid formulations, and then um, to kind of help with all of the dosing. And she kind of mentioned the trouble swallowing later on. So they might not be able to have as much quantity. And of course, secretions can be a problem. And so she talked a little bit about uh, how to dry people up a little bit, make them more comfortable, the scopolamine patches which, uh, as most of you know, are a little bit expensive and sometimes a little more difficult to get because of their expense and prior auths. But um, atropine drops, which was interesting. It wasn't something I've used before. Uh, I, yeah, I've not seen that. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, I haven't. I've been around a couple of years. <laughs> and, uh, and then the uh, glycopyrrolate. I've never used those. I've used never the atropine. Used <laughs> yeah, the tabs. But... Uh, and then a little bit about expectorants and for uh, and for coughing, the guanefacin, and of course opioids are, you know, a reasonably good way to stop people's coughing. Again, if you're not worried about other things, and uh, you know, it does cause that respiratory depression, less cough, reflex. Yeah, and then she ended with the the dysphagia, trouble swallowing, end of life. Um, if they have a lot of other comorbid issues, history of stroke or other neurologic issues, they might have it sooner. This can definitely complicate the medication administration because they're not going to be able to swallow the quantity or they're not going to be able to swallow tabs clearly. Um, But she talked about different ways to make slurries for patients who can't swallow. But just to remember that, as I'm going to say again, which is so backwards of anything I normally say is opioids and benzos are your bottom line answers for end-of-life care. And these can be given rectally. Even as a family member who's had to give these before, the thought of it sounds a lot worse than the actual act because when you see your person there struggling, you'll do anything and to help them be comfortable. And so just know that there's always that, even if you can't get the compounded thing at three in the morning when you need it. So, yeah. And that was pretty much it for her. Um, then we we actually had a little case presentation, and really the point of the case uh, was post-hospital care. Uh, the, many of these COVID patients, and this patient in particular, uh, left the tertiary center, went back to rural Minnesota, and had been intubated for roughly 8 to 10 days. I can't remember the exact time, but still having some shortness of breath, still some occasional oxygen use. And and really, what is there available right now in the literature for what to be following with these patients? Nothing. There's nothing. There is nothing. Don't I, Google it. I spent an hour and a half last night going through all different types of literature searches trying to find things. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over, waiting for a different result. Yeah, and I, I did. I went to different... Uh, you went to different di- sites. Different sites. That all published studies. Yeah. Not one of them had one. There was very little. And so I think that really um, this is going to be a, somewhat of a wait for this stuff to come out and learn as you go. I mean, I think if you look at some of the respiratory issues and a lot of these patients with ARDS who are coming out, we you've got to kind of follow some of that literature. Um, you know, we did pull that literature, our nurse, Erin, who made these perfect bullet points, despite what Kurt says. Anyway, what I found interesting with the ARDS literature was that you'd think it was going to be all pulmonary function testing and endurance capacity and all of that. And yeah, there was obviously physical deconditioning and exercise capacity issues, but lung function testing most of the time within five years had returned to normal, even faster. 
but it was the other things, the, the actual physical strength and then the mental health and the PTSD of all of this. And they said the highest risk was in patients who were intubated more than two to three days. And this is just, you know, bread and butter, ARDS, which is still kind of an oxymoron. But these patients with COVID, it's, you know, two weeks, 10 days. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to watch this as it it kind of progresses. But I thought what Dr. Lucas talked about with some of the different things they've done out in Boston and Massachusetts, um, things that they're following and sending home were pretty interesting. Yeah. And some of the things that she'd noticed, she's an internist who does mostly uh, uh, nursing home and palliative care. And one of the things that she's noticed is these patients coming back uh, to their nursing home was really that even though they were better, uh, a lot of times because they didn't taste or smell really well, they weren't eating well, they weren't drinking well. And there's been a lot of kind of failure to thrive in this population, uh, which is something I don't think that we would be thinking about um, right off. No, oh, and they've actually started a study at a Mass General where they send patients home, COVID patients home with a Holter monitor because there's a lot of cardiac arrhythmias that they've noticed in these patients, which have then led to further sudden death. Sudden death. And so different things to watch. And then the bottom line question of how long do you quarantine these patients? And nobody knows. Nobody knows. You know, a lot of the literature, and I know Dr. Nasca from infectious diseases said that. The more severe your illness, the longer you are, you know, possibly able to transmit virus. So you might be quarantined up to a month. But CDC says like 72 hours, which everybody laughed at today, I guess. And then but a lot of different places say, you know, that 10 to 14 days quarantine after illness and discharge from the hospital. But again, positive tests continually pass that. So and then our. Favorite pandemic doctor, Dr. John Hick. Uh, <laughs> pandemic doctor. Yeah, Dr. Pandemic, John Hick, um, came on and talked a little bit. He wanted to make it very clear that he is not the person who is developing the models as to when the peak is, uh, that he's only reporting what they're saying from the U. So uh, they are. They're forecasting that midsummer peak and that potentially it's going to start to taper off in August, which uh, none of us want to hear. <laughs> No, I really want my number three to start kindergarten this fall. Yeah, I think that we just don't know. Um, you know, some of the models are, are showing that we're just going to kind of have these frequent small waves over the next, well, you know, year. And uh, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, and then when we look overall what our state and our, is doing and what the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul is doing, it was interesting how uh, he feels that some of the data is really comparing very much to Detroit, uh, which is uh, kind of offering some good lessons for Minnesota on exactly uh, what to do and the, the uh, kind of staying uh, away from people and uh, sheltering in place and all of that and how you can flatten the curve. But I, yeah. I think Dr. Bell stopped talking. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's just one of those things that it's like nobody really knows. And, you know, the pandemic that we keep talking about from 1918 lasted until 1920. And, of course, none of us really want that. And... You know, I think we all have the moments of this just needs to be over because we all want life back. And then there's moments where it's like, oh, my goodness, you hear these stories and you're just like, don't go anywhere ever. So, yeah, there's some people that are suggesting that including masks that people should be wearing out in public. We should be wearing face shields, which (laughs) I do have a welding shield. I suppose I could wear that, although it's pretty dark. Um, Like your humor. Yes. And so... (laughs) um, I think the last point that Dr. Pandemic made was that uh, we really need to 
to be thinking, how are we going to staff our hospitals and clinics if people start to get sick and as we hit the surge? Well, and that is interesting as, you know, starting next week, the governor is starting to loosen elective surgeries and there's talk already of opening clinics more and it just seems so backwards than what Dr. Hicks said. So I guess it's, it's everybody kind of trying to figure out what the right answer is when no one really knows anything. So it's stay tuned. Every day seems to be a little different. Yes. And so I believe uh, tomorrow our opioid echo is uh, Dr. Bob Levy. We'll be talking about alcohol. And then Thursday. The whole long-term care discussion, which is huge in Minnesota. So. Yeah, we expect we're going to have a lot of people on from the Minnesota Department of Health. So we would welcome you to join us for that. Uh, and I am trying to think of anything else we have going on. Just that our band is starting to warm up and Battle Legs is going to play us off today and we're going to kind of let them pick a song at will. Yes, I can hear them warming up. So thanks again for listening. And again, uh, you're welcome to join us again uh, tomorrow for Opioid Echo and Thursday for uh, COVID. COVID-19 Echo 11. Each other.